Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Welcome to the Theology of the Buddy podcast, episode 12. On today's Catholic Creatives Corner, Chris interviews professional veil maker and Catholic wife and mom of four, Jessica McCormick of Studio Laudate. They discuss a bit of her cool history from nominal Catholicism through atheism and rediscovering the beauty of the Catholic faith and the importance of veiling in the liturgy. Welcome to Catholic Creatives Corner. Jess, how are you? Hey, I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, yeah, we wanted to bring you on the show today in particular because of the fact that you have a, a mantle or a chapel veil business that you run. But you have a bit of a story in it and a, and, um, a bit of a journey. And I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit and learn a little bit more of, of how and why uh, you began veiling yourself and yeah, and why you began uh, actually sharing that with the world through your business. So um, can we can we start with just maybe give us a, a little bit of a brief history of, of kind of how you how you kind of came to love the faith and yeah, and how it brought you to today? Absolutely. So growing up, um, I was a nominal Catholic. And not much of devotional life or anything like that. It was kind of get to church on Sunday or you go to hell kind of religion. Um, So by college, I had fallen away. I was agnostic. Then I turned atheist. There was no God. Why would there be anyways? Um, But I remember I hit rock bottom one day. I was deep into sin and my world shut down around me. And all of a sudden I was left with nothing. And I remember I walked into a Catholic church. I don't know why I did that. That was the last place I wanted to be, but I happened to be strolling down the street and there was a Catholic church. I walked in and there were two lights on in the church. There was a little red candle in the front somewhere, which obviously the tabernacle lamp. And then there was a little red lamp or light in the back, the confessional. And I was like, I just need to talk to somebody. So I walked into the confessional and the priest led me through a confession. I didn't know how to confess anymore. It had been so long. And he, re- he recognized that he was a very wise, wise priest. And he led me through um, my first confession back in years. And I remember at that moment, a light was lit in my soul again. And I thought, I need to know more. I need to know why I'm at peace right now. Because I shouldn't be. Everything is crashing around me. I've got nothing left. Why am I at peace? You know, so I started d- digging deeper and deeper into that and eventually came to um, recognize different traditions and different um, devotions of the faith. And as I dug deeper and deeper, it also led me to discover that there was religious life in the church. And I thought, if I'm going to become holy, I need to be a sister. Um, And we can get into that (laughs) later. (laughs) (laughs) But then I did that. I, I became a sister for a while. And then after a time, God said, okay, I'm done with this for you. I have something else. And now I'm a wife and mother. Um, I have four children, <laughs> a veil business, and a whole bunch of other stuff going on on the side always, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So for you, you grew up in Canada, correct? Yes. Yeah. And how did how did growing up in, like, I presume you probably went to Catholic school 
in Canada mm-hmm. too, right? Yes. Like how did yes. how did that actually impact <laughs> you positively or or negatively in your faith? Unfortunately for me, it was not a positive experience. Even looking back now, um, we were always taught all religions are equal. Basically, whenever we had school masses, the once or twice a year that we had it, you know, everyone was there, including now I think back, you know, I had Muslim friends. I had um, Jewish friends in the same school. They were in Catholic schools because that was the, the school in the district. And we all went to mass. We all went up to communion, whether we were sinners, Christians, non-Christians, Catholics, whatever. It was just kind of a free for all. So that didn't really help the faith stand out as something different from the rest. Right, right. Um, so so w- after you had kind of this reversion, if you want to call it that moment, um, after going to confession, you you had decided that maybe maybe I'm called to religious life. So what what drew you to to that idea in particular? <laughs> the first thing to be totally honest that drew me was the outfit the habit yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> because there was something so beautiful about it. It was long and flowy and you know I didn't know much about the faith yet obviously. Uh, but I started researching it because I went to a profession of vows and there was this choir of it looked like angels. They were all wearing the same habit and their voices were just incredible to the point where it just drew your heart into something deeper. Some, some kind of a mystery. And I needed to know what that was to the point where I was going to do this. And and obviously God worked through that because <laughs> there was a lot of hurdles along the way that he had to clear out very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so for you seeing the sisters had a real impact on you in terms of leading you to a, a deeper sense of of an awareness of God. Would you, would you say that? Absolutely. I mean, we're corporal beings, right? We experience the world through our senses and God can use that. And for me, it was the visual and hearing them also. And that's what he used. You know, he doesn't have to always start with this grandiose, you know, I don't know, miracle or vision like Lord is calling you now. Go. No, it was just just the, the, these humble sisters, the way they looked and the way they sang. Right. <laughs> and that's what started it. Right. Right. So and that was those were Dominican sisters, correct? Yes. The Dominican sisters in Ann Arbor. Amazing. An amazing community. Yeah, for sure. So when you decided and, and realized that our Lord wasn't calling you to to the religious life, you you obviously left the community. Where did where did life take you from there? So I had been there for six years, and I was coming up to a renewal of of vows. Um, you don't walk in through the door and sign your life away on day one. Mm-hmm. It's very different from marriage, and the church acknowledges that uh, by giving a period of discernment where there are temporary vows along the way before perpetual vows. So I was at a point where I could discern, and leading up to that there was a constant pull on my heart to, to go and leave. And I kept saying, Lord, I've got nothing. I've given you everything. Literally. I've given you not only my heart, my body, but I've given you my, my poverty. I have no money. (laughs) Like the world needs money. You know, I don't, I don't have anything. (laughs) Um, and, and one of the sisters actually took me on her home visit right when I left for a week. And she said, come with me 
my sister will take care of you. Um, <laughs> she knows where to shop and, you know, get your hair done or whatever. <laughs> wow. And kind of reintroduced me back into the world in a sense. After six years, I mean, I hadn't seen a cell phone, Chris. Oh, wow. Like I saw, you know, an iPhone for the first time. I didn't know what to do with it because there was no buttons to push. <laughs> like I couldn't dial. <laughs> so, <laughs> I needed a quick 101 on things that have changed in the world the last six years. <laughs> um, wow. And then I remember sitting down in front of a computer and thinking, I need to find a job. Hmm. And how do you write a resume after six years in religious life? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was a sister for six years. Well, people are going to love you or hate you for that one way or another. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now you had with the Dominican sisters, had you been involved with teaching and doing things like that while you were there? Yes. So the first few years there, I spent um, learning a lot about the faith, um, finally got some good solid theology, um, read the catechism. I didn't even know that existed before I entered the convent, except for that it was on my book list. Wow. I mean, I, I really came a long way, Chris. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then um, eventually went and completed my bachelor's degree at, at the university. And then started teaching. And it was when I started teaching that I realized, you know, these students have families that they're going to. And I kept pushing it away because I thought, you know what, Lord, this, this can't be from you. I'm your bride. You said I could be your bride. We're done. We're good. Right. (laughs) And he just kept saying, no, I think I've got something else for you. I think I've got something else for you. And it was through teaching though in private schools that that came about just seeing these students, seeing these families really doing it, something I hadn't seen growing up. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Would you say that seeing solid Catholic families, like I I know for me, for example, I can, I come from a, a home where like I didn't have a dad growing up and, and so it was just my mom and I, you know, and so I'd always kind of had this hallowed idea of of Catholic solid Catholic families and so whenever I would see that I'd you know I'd get really wide-eyed yeah like oh I wish you know so that kind of experience for you of seeing real Catholic families I mean it was it was a kind of a new concept for you it was and I grew up in a broken home too so I can totally relate to that but I saw these families where there was a mother and a father and a bazillion children per family (laughs) And they were doing it, but they were, they were doing it through sacrificial love, you know, and that was a new concept to me. Um, like, how are you feeding six children on one salary, you know, and, right. and sending them to private school? Wow. But these families were willing to sacrifice so much. Like, that's how much their, that's how deep their faith was. And that inspired me, too. That's awesome. So, so after, so after you left the convent, you came back into the world um, and, you know, saw an iPhone for the first time and all those cool things. And then, so you, how did you end up going from, cause you're now living in the United States. How did you end up in the U S again after <laughs> <laughs> kind of coming home and then, and then leaving again? You know, it was all in God's hands because if I had it my way, I would have probably stayed in Canada a lot easier, you know, um, wouldn't have to worry about immigration and all that crazy business. But God kept pulling on my heart. And again, he used beauty. He used the mountains of Oregon. I had seen them and I thought, I need to go back. I want to live there, even if it's just for a little while, Lord. But I want to go back and maybe hike up a mountain or something, you know. <laughs> and 
so I started applying to different jobs in Oregon and finally got a really awesome job at a parish. And then I thought, I need to find some friends. <laughs> right. And so <laughs> I started looking online because where do you look when you need friends? You go to Catholic match, right? As right. a single female. Um, <laughs> and I met my husband that way. Um, oh, we started awesome. talking and the rest is history, really. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So so he was from from Oregon then? Born and raised in Oregon. And if I had been in Canada, he probably would have never, we probably would have never met. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was just, it would have been too far and too many unknowns. Whereas here I was coming to Oregon and everything was lined up already. And sure, I'll meet with you for a concert of yeah. polyphony. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, so when you, when you ended up living in Oregon, what did you do for work while you were there? I was a pastoral associate at a parish. And I also taught uh, music to the school, the parochial school there. So you ended up in in Oregon and generally in the Portland area, right? No, I ended up down south first. Oh, did you? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I didn't move up until in, into Portland area until we were married and probably a year or two into our marriage. We moved okay. up to Portland area. Okay. Mm -hmm. So your experience in, in Southern Oregon obviously um, was was a, a great experience for you uh, to see kind of where people were, were in their faith. But that parish was a Novus Ordo parish, right? Right. And right. it brought with it many challenges that we see in a lot of parishes, sadly, that only have the Novus Ordo. And in that parish, there was also a small, um, quiet, but persistent group that was constantly asking for the extraordinary form. And it was during my time there that Father brought a priest that could say the extraordinary form a few times a year. It was oh, wow. first four times a year, then six times a year. And I remember going to that Novus Ordo. I had gone a few, t or that, story extraordinary form. I had gone a few times before and really did not like it okay. <laughs> because it was so different and there was a lot of whispering and then, you know, <laughs> it was just unfamiliar Yeah, and I hadn't had good catechesis on it, mm. but now I was faced with a position where I had to teach this to the people. Oh, wow. I had to help others come to it, understand it and love it because it is part of our tradition. Yeah. So I ordered about a thousand books off of Amazon that day and started <laughs> plowing through them because I knew it was coming. Even the RCIA, I was to bring the RCIA to Latin Mass, whoever wanted to come to wow. to show them that. And, <laughs> and Father said, you're on because you know more than I do. <laughs> wow. So it was through that study, though, and and really delving into the, the mystery and the, the symbolism and, you know, that I came to really love the traditional mass. And then when we didn't have it every Sunday to yearn for it and really long for it and write to the bishop every week. And <laughs> Archbishop Sample probably has a file with my name on it somewhere. I just know it. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so your bishop was, was Archbishop Sample. Like he's, he's well known for really loving the, the Latin mass. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he came into a tough diocese um, and he's done a lot there. I mean, I'm not there anymore, but I still follow. I'm, I'm a secret stalker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's done a lot to really help people understand 
the tradition of the church. Yeah. Um, because if people don't understand, you can't start introducing things and customs and traditions and even the Latin mass. Right. For sure. So, so when did you start going more regularly to the Latin mass? It was when we were in Portland. Um, we went to St. Stephen's parish and St. Stephen's parish. They had the Novus Ordo done very reverently at Orientum and so forth. And we started going to that because that was comfortable for both my husband and I. And slowly but surely we started saying, well, maybe we should just try going to the Latin mass. And it was eight o'clock in the morning, super early, especially when you have kids. Yeah. But every once in a while we would go and we would just feel so, so challenged to a deeper life. So motivated to, to strive for greatness and strive for holiness. Whereas we weren't quite getting that from the Novus Ordo. Mm. So we started doing a lot of soul searching and research and prayer. And it wasn't really until this past year, 2018, that we started going exclusively to the Latin Mass. Oh, nice. Unless there's a snowstorm and then we go to the parish that's, you know, a mile away. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> because it's still valid. <laughs> right. But we, we sacrifice and we go to the only Latin Mass here in the Grand Rapids Diocese on Sundays because we feel very, very strongly about it. Yeah. Nice. So now, so fast forwarding. So, so now that you're in Grand Rapids, um, you, you started going pretty much primarily to, to the Latin mass. Were you, did you start veiling at that point or had that started earlier for you? It started a lot earlier. Um, I had seen someone somewhere once wearing a lace something or other on their head. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's weird. Um, I'm never going to do that. Yeah. But God had other plans. <laughs> yeah. I actually started veiling six years ago, um, oh, wow. which it's, it's a long time. And I was the only one when I was working at the parish. I, I did other things like I wore, you know, a lace headband or a hat because <laughs> it wouldn't have been consistent with my position. Um, I would have really, really stood out as a Jesus freak. Right. And that would not be a healthy way to introduce anything <laughs> into a community that has never seen that before. Right. Um, but I started six years ago. And the first time that I wanted to put on the chapel veil, I had already purchased one. It was in my purse. I was dragging it around from mass to mass. And I felt like God was saying, just put it on. Yeah. <laughs> so here I was. We were traveling to California for the Walk for Life. And by us, I mean my um, boyfriend then <laughs> and me. And I was like, okay, so I hope he's on the same page, but I'm not sure. And I kind of let him know before mass, you know, I'm going to try this new thing and just see how it goes. Don't freak out, basically. Please don't leave me. <laughs> I really like you. <laughs> so I, I put it on for mass. You know, no one knows me in this parish. It's going to be safe, whatever. Right. And I remember the whole mass. He just had this smile on his face. And I remember thinking, huh, there's something to that. Because it wasn't just a smirk or like, oh, what are you doing? Look at you. <laughs> it was it was something deeper. It was something that that just spoke of femininity and spoke of that that reverence and awe of mystery, you know. And ever since then it was just I continued and I haven't gotten any pushback yet. He you know <laughs> <laughs> And we're married now, so it worked out in that sense too. Yeah, but yeah. Um, <laughs> he didn't leave you in the end. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it was this constant, constant pull on my heart to to cover myself before the Lord. It's it's scriptural, it's historical, it's 
it's so feminine. It's just so, so right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, so here, so here's the interesting thing. So, I mean, it is, and it's a, it's an old, it's an old tradition that's been around for very long, but it, it seems almost forgotten by the baby boomers and you know what I mean? Like you don't mm -hmm. see a lot of them unless they're at the Latin mass, but right. you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Like young people are picking it up in droves. Young women are picking it up in droves. I was watching a uh, advertisement for the Sikh conference from the fellowship of Catholic university students in the States. They're big, you know, 20,000 people conference that they have every year. And, right. you know, they're panning through the crowd and I'm just seeing veil, veil, veil. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago, you know, but, yeah. but it's like, it's exploding. Why, why do you think that is? I think with everything that's going on in our culture, especially the feminist movement, where it's woman power and, you know, empower girls and this and that. I think women, especially younger women, are looking for authentic femininity and what it means to be a woman. Because something with that other message is just not working. And especially now we're seeing it going to the point of, of abortion on demand at any point. You know, and is that what feminism is? No. Well, what is it then, you know? And I think, I think a lot of women, too, are seeking something deeper because, again, when you turn to the culture, the culture doesn't give you much. The culture gives you a contraceptive pill and tells you to have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the church says you're worth so much more. You're a beautiful daughter of God. And, and there's something there that, that really draws women in to the point of doing something that older generations might even look down upon. You know, like, oh, I did that, you know, in school or something when I went to Catholic school and I hated it. And, you know, I've, I've heard that. And I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your experience, but here's why I do it. And I share with them my story whenever I get an opportunity. Sometimes you don't get the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what it is. I think it's that, that desire. You know, the pendulum has swung. It's swung far left and it's starting to swing back. For sure. Now, so for you, I mean, so you, you had started veiling at the Novus Ordo and mm -hmm. you were, you know, kind of a little bit, not probably not a sore thumb, but I mean, it was, you know, something that was countercultural to the parish that you were in. And now mm -hmm. you're in a parish where do, do a lot of girls veil at your parish currently, or is it, is it still maybe 50 50 or or something like that at the latin mass um which we have on sundays it's very i'd say maybe even 75 percent oh wow but at the novus ordo masses it's probably 40 to 50 percent too it's it's really <laughs> taking hold you know wow. and i think a lot of it has to do with the reverence of the mass whether it's novus ordo or extraordinary form i mean the reverence that is due god really speaks to the congregation. It speaks to the laity. It speaks to what our role is, you know? And I think when, especially women, we discover what our role in the liturgy is, we're just floored with awe, you know? And, and one response to that, it's not the only response, but one response to that is to, to cover, to veil, 
you know, because the liturgy veils things that are sacred. You know, so part of me was like, well, I'm sacred, so therefore, <laughs> <laughs> boom. <laughs> That's amazing. So what got you started in making veils? Right. So I felt that God was not only calling me to be this countercultural witness or whatever you want to call it, but also to share that with others and to try to make veils in a way that was affordable, but still beautiful. Um, Cause I remember when I was looking for my first veil, it was like, okay, 40, 50, 60 bucks just to get in the door. Like I wasn't sure I wanted to commit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's um, kind of a steep entrance. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, if you've been doing it for a while and you know, you want that beautiful solemnity veil, well, you know, yes, by all means, <laughs> I'm all for it. And I love, I love all those um, different businesses that do that. But at the same time, like for myself starting out, I, I wanted to spend as little as possible just to try it out, test the waters and, and kind of tell God I checked it off the list, Yeah, <laughs> um, which wasn't his plan, but that I wanted to share that with others. You know, and I try to keep it at an affordable price point. I don't make a lot on them. Um, I make a little bit, you know, it's my coffee money (laughs) 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 because I have four kids and (laughs) that is liquid gold. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But I wanted to share it with others and also to create something that was honoring God. Hmm. Um, Because often for stay at home moms, it's so easy to get isolated and feel like we're not doing anything for the greater glory of God. I mean, we are, but that temptation is there. Right. You know, and I feel like in this way I can do something beyond what I do in my home with my children and my husband to help spread this beautiful devotion. That's awesome. So when did you start Studio Laudate? Oh gosh, four or five years ago. I'd have to double check, but it's been, it's been a while and in its heyday, it was booming. Um, I've had to tone down quite a bit because as I had each child, I took down product. (laughs) (laughs) It was just becoming too much. And obviously my first vocation is to my children, to my husband. Um, So I do as much as I can. And that's why it's an Etsy shop now as opposed to my own independent website, which it was when I only had one child. (laughs) Now, do you find you still get decent exposure through Etsy or is it was it better when you had your own website? You know, it's kind of encouraging, actually, Chris, because there's a lot of competition now um, in a good sense. I don't mean like. We're yeah. all knocking each other down, like, buy my veil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's a lot more um, businesses and ladies out there making these chapel veils in different shapes and styles and colors. And, and I think that's beautiful. So, no, I don't get as much business as I used to. But I'm okay with that because I'm part of – I feel like I'm part of a community that's spreading the devotion, yeah. that's spreading this, this beautiful, you know, subtle – your reminder of what femininity is and what it is to be like our lady. So at the end of the day, why, why do you think women should consider veiling? If you could kind of sum it up, what, what would you say to, to a woman who, you know, sees all these, these chapel veils is not really sure um, they want to take the plunge. What would you say to them? I'd probably say, just try it. Um, you are a beautiful daughter of God and God has made woman, women mysterious. You know, we bear children in mist, like we, we, um, gestate children in mystery. We, we're sacred in a sense that men can't do that. (laughs) You know, 
and in, in the liturgy, like look around, things that are sacred are veiled. The tabernacle is veiled. The chalice, especially in the extraordinary form, is veiled. You know, there's a beautiful reason for that. And just try it. And if it's uncomfortable to, you know, go out and get a full-blown lace chapel veil, fine. You know, like I said, I started with a little lace scarf. It's not about how you do it. It's about the symbolism and the the disposition of the heart. You know, if in your heart you're doing it just to prove someone wrong, well, that's not the right disposition. Right. But if in your heart you're doing it because you're hoping that in this way it will be an external reminder of your internal contemplation of God present in the Eucharist, just like Mother Mary contemplated him, then go for it. Try it. That's awesome. So one of one of the things that I, I've heard is that you know, some people who are outside of, you know, tratty circles obviously feel <laughs> judged by a lot of us. Um, but especially <laughs> women who veil, you know, pe- women who don't veil are, kind of wonder if they're being judged. Would Do you, do you think that's the case that that veil wearing <laughs> women judge non veil wearing women? No, I think the opposite might be more true. <laughs> I think, like for myself, I've had a few friends that over time have have asked questions and eventually just tried it out and started, you know, practicing this beautiful devotion. And every time that happens, I feel like, yes, <laughs> you made it, you know. Yeah. Um, not that everyone has to, but it's that openness, you know. And I think when, like for myself, when I look around and I see someone not wearing a chapel veil, a lady not wearing a chapel veil or a girl, I don't judge them. I just pray for her. I say, you know, Lord, it's it's not about the external. It's about the internal. And, you know, if there is anything in my heart that is judging her, root it out. And, you know, and I'll make a point of even smiling at them, mm-hmm. um, especially if my children are misbehaving during mass. I'll <laughs> make eye contact and I am, I'm human. I'm yeah. human. I'm not holier than thou. I'm not some, you know, statue up here I am a human being and I'm about to lose it with this kid so (laughs) (laughs) yeah now I wanted to ask you in particular to your experience as a former sister do you think that impacted your your love for veiling at all you know it probably did um thinking back to that time I mean I wore a religious sister's full habit. So I had a, a religious veil. Um, and at first in the novitiate, it was white and then it changed into black. And I remember looking into the symbolism of that, but it really wasn't until I was with the guy that I was going to marry, his boyfriend, that I felt very strongly pulled towards somehow separating out who's, who's in charge of this relationship, yeah. who's the head, you know, even though we weren't married yet at the time, it was it was important for me to figure out my femininity real fast. So hopping back, so what what is the symbolism between going from a white veil and a black veil? Oh, sure. So most religious communities, not all, but a lot of them do go from a white veil to a black veil. And in the novitiate, the sister is still learning. She hasn't made vows. And then the vows profession, the massive profession, um, the sister would receive a black veil as a symbol of being wedded to Christ. You know, the same as a married person receives a wedding ring on their wedding day. So there's that symbolism. And even in, in tratty circles, <laughs> you know, 
you see younger girls wearing white or light colors and married women wearing darker or black. And it, it's not a hard, fast rule. I mean, if a married woman wears white, it's not like the mass is going to come to a screeching halt because, <laughs> oh my goodness, she wore the wrong color. Right. But there is that tradition behind it that you see in religious communities very prominently. It's actually quite interesting um, in our group of friends. My wife, uh, Julie, she, is, she loves veiling and like our, our other close friends, she, they love veiling. And so they're like, you know, sharing back and forth all the time, <laughs> different like you know, cool looking veils and things like that. And like, <laughs> like Julie received a, a new veil for Christmas from them. Like it, it's, it's kind of a neat experience seeing women do that with each other. You know, men don't really have that. We don't, you know, we don't mm-hmm. have a way of kind of sharing those, <laughs> those types of devotions, you know, but like, it's cool that women can kind of share that. Cause it's, it's also like, it looks cool too. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it doesn't just, oh, yeah. it, it, you know, especially like the, the rad colors that they have now too, <laughs> like, you know, like the really cool purples or the cool, you know, mm-hmm. like silvery ones, like just, yeah, it, it's, it's cool that they can kind of express that feminine side and still have it be something that pertains to their faith too. Absolutely. Cause women, like we don't. We don't always just get together and talk about hard facts. There has to be, (laughs) there's a lot of creativity and beauty. You know, that's part of the feminine, the feminine mystique. You know, we bring beauty to, okay, so a really good example. When my husband and I got married, you know, he brought the toolbox and I brought artwork for the walls. And it was just this moment of, okay, so you're the practical and it's my (laughs) job to turn this house into a home. Yeah. You know, and it's been like that every time we've moved or whatever. It, but it's part of being a woman. It's just naturally in a woman. So so when I hear like your wife is talking about different veils or, you know, sharing pictures on Pinterest or whatever. Yeah. It's like, yes, that that's that's so right. If I heard that men were doing that, I'd really question. <laughs> yeah. So when going through your your move, so you you moved from Oregon and you're now in Michigan. Um, was it, did you find it difficult finding a community again, like a decent, like Catholic community in Michigan where you are now? It has been a challenge. Um, I mean, in Portland or at St. Stephen's, it was a very small community and it kind of was growing before our eyes slowly, excuse me. Whereas here at the parish is very large it's the only parish in the diocese, like I've mentioned, that offers the extraordinary form. So all those families are attracted to it and come from far and wide. And there just seems not to be the same type of community. And it could be for various reasons. I mean, our, our parish hall has been under construction pretty much since we arrived here. So there haven't been many like get togethers on Sundays. Okay. Um, I'm sure there will be ones that starts up, but we haven't really, we haven't really clicked in yet. Um, mind you, we've only been here for about a year. And we've only started going to the Latin mass this past year. Yeah. So, you know, we're still the newbies. Yeah. Um, so we're slowly, slowly merging our way into it. Yeah. Now, now in Portland, I mean, Portland is, is so well known for being 
like a progressive quote unquote town and, you know, very hipster. I know that that word is probably very <laughs> new to you. Um, we were just talking before the actual interview about the fact that she just had to ask what a hipster was. She lived, she lived in Portland, which is the like hipster capital of the entire world. But, but I think, but I think people need to hear what what your explanation was because I think it's probably the most hipster thing to say. <laughs> what like how like you what did you say? You said uh like you didn't know what a hipster was because Oh, in Portland if you're like no one's trying to be a hipster. It's not like you're walking around saying, Are you a hipster? Like <laughs> That term isn't even in circulation, really. It's just you just be. If you're in Portland, you just need to be. Find something weird and be it, you know? And I guess if that makes you hipster, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing, though, because it's just like <laughs> everybody else would look at you like a hipster. And you're like, no, man, I'm just being. Like, <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So cool. So cool. Yeah. So. So coming back to that, so in in Portland, obviously, there's all these different ways of life, and you know you've got you've got the crazy feminists on one side, and you've got probably conservative people on the other. You've got yeah, you've got like all these like people on a different spectrum, and then you've probably got Catholics who are also you know kind of being hipster by being part of the latin mass you know what i mean like <laughs> do you th and and because there's probably so much hatred and vitriol for catholic stuff and and just for being catholic in a place like portland do you think that kind of created a a stronger community there like you were saying that before the interview that where you live in michigan is like it's more there's a lot more of a Christian acceptance there, but in a place like Portland, being Christ Christians probably a little bit more taboo. Is that kind of correct? Absolutely. So being in Portland, it was kind of like you can be anything you want to be, but if you're Christian, we hate you. If you're Catholic, we really hate you. Yeah. I mean, St. Stephen's Church was vandalized, you know, outright graffiti on the walls. Like that's how much hatred there is against the things of God. And I think it's because people are stirred in their conscience deep down inside somewhere, you know, someone maybe in their youth said something and, and it's being stirred up by this Catholic group that's doing things, you know, and I don't see it as much here in Grand Rapids. Um, it, it's a lot more Christian, a lot more conservative overall, mm. not to say that it's, you know, the Mecca of all Christianity or anything <laughs> like that, but you go into a restaurant and they have a scripture quote on the wall. You go into a business, like my husband's business, and their motto is based on scripture. Their their name is based on scripture, wow. you know, and and they give their employees like a week off to do missionary work if they choose to, paid week off, you know, like wow. that's unheard of in Portland. It's like yeah. you want a week off to go on a missionary trip, like you're fired in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas here, it's you know, it's it's encouraged. It's it's what business owners want because they know that if if they have God as part of their team, as part of their, their life, that business will flourish and that God will take care of all those little details. Whereas in Portland, there isn't that sense. There isn't that sense of there's a higher being that I should be reverencing or, 
paying any attention to. It's all about me. Yeah. 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 Cause I've been kind of, I've been kind of considering the question of dynamics for Latin mass communities, because like, for our example, our, our Latin mass community, I mean, we've been, we've been shuffled around from parish to parish to, you know, you know, from high Catholic high school chapel to, you know, <laughs> hospital chapel. Like we were in a hospital chapel at one point. Oh, wow. Like, I mean, and now we've, we've, we have an official parish that we're in again, but I mean, I think that there is that that sense of of a deeper community there just because it's like we've kind of gone through battle together you know Mm -hmm. we're kind of like we all know that we're not necessarily the in crowd in this place you know so yeah no I just was kind of wondering if that was kind of the experience in Portland for people because it it is such a, a liberal place to live and and wouldn't be as welcoming to to really traditional people, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you could even see it, you know, as the parish started to grow, there was more opposition. Suddenly the neighborhood was writing a letter to the city saying, well, they shouldn't have their bells ringing before mass because it's disturbing our peace. (laughs) You know, even things like that. It's like, this is ridiculous. This church has been here forever. Maybe they weren't ringing bells forever, but all of a sudden the bells are bothering people. You know, even that just small example, you know, as, as the community grew stronger and really figured out its identity um, and the Latin mass started growing and, and the traditions and processions started happening and rosary walks around the neighborhood, like all these weird Catholic things, you know, that all the neighbors would get a little tag on their door saying, Hey, we're having a Eucharistic procession. Here's what it is. In case you were wondering, take a look out your window. We'll be coming by with Jesus, you yeah. know, but <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's really cool. Happen, by the way, yeah. that's a really cool idea. I should, I should pass that on. To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was done. I, I don't know if it was done every year, but I know the first year that the procession um, for Corpus Christi happened, um, all the neighbors were alerted to the fact that the Catholics were coming. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a moment to evangelize and just share our faith, which is, you know, in Portland was very much taboo and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, just as there's opposition Outside of the church, there's lots of opposition inside of the church, too. I mean, we, you know, in the recent news, we've heard about the the Father Dwyer guy in Saginaw, who was supposedly Mm -hmm. ousted after just trying to put little traditional stuff in his liturgy. I mean, Mm -hmm. and, and he wasn't even going full Latin mass. I mean, he was doing things like adding a little incense using an mm-hmm. actual curie, you know, using the songtus. I mean, nothing crazy. And and it turns out supposedly it was a small group of older disgruntled parishioners did a re- mm-hmm. letter writing campaign to get this young priest out. You know, right. like how do you handle the the stuff that's going on in the church right now? towards traditionalists and yeah like how how do you how do you deal with that as a as a mother you've got to be wondering like what is the future going to look like in the church for my children oh absolutely absolutely and I think with with the news you know the more we hear the more my husband and I ask ourselves what more can we do 
what other traditions are there? What other devotions? What other, you know, because it's so easy to just look at the news and get angry at the church and even storm out because, well, it's, it's, you know, it's ruined Vatican II or whatever, you know, whichever, wherever you want to place the blame, it's ruined. We should just leave and there's no point anymore. It's so easy to do that. But instead, we're trying to counter that by, by creating our domestic church, by building up our children in the faith, by teaching them, you know, my, my three-year-old can recite the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel in English, but we'll start working on the Latin maybe in a few years. That's amazing. Um, yeah, but they, they know that prayer. They know, they know, you know, basic tenets of their faith. And when we go out in public, like my daughter the other day, we were at a, at a playgroup and just a random secular playgroup. And she happened to bring her chapel veil with her, which she sometimes wears at mass, <laughs> depending <laughs> on her little yeah. mood. <laughs> but she pulled it out and, and the girl said, well, what is that? And she said, this is my veil I wear to church when I go see Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and this girl was not Catholic, but I thought, way to go. Like she's yeah. sharing her faith in a way that I would probably just stuff it back in my purse and say nothing. Nothing. That was nothing. You saw nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but but just again creating that domestic church and really living our, our faith and learning really from our children not to be afraid to speak our faith. Yeah. Yeah. Now for you obviously having those those years in the convent probably set some I'm assuming <laughs> probably <laughs> set some some things in motion for you spiritually in terms of things that were important. How has Dominican spirituality impacted your parenting? Dominican spirituality um, has a unique element of study in it. And that's one thing that drew me deeper and deeper into the Dominican community once I was there. Um, we were constantly reading books and constantly taking classes. And to the point of, you know, it could drive someone crazy if they didn't have a vocation to the community because every living moment, it seemed we were studying or reading or discussing something we had studied. Um, but that, that desire for knowledge, you know, that really was enkindled in my heart there and it hasn't stopped. And I don't read as much as I used to because time is limited and <laughs> there's a lot going on. And I definitely don't pray as much as I did in the convent because I'm in a different vocation now. And that was a whole transition in and of itself. But at the same time, that desire for truth, that desire to, you know, you know, like St. Catherine of Siena said, if you are truly who God made you to be, you will set the whole world on fire. She didn't say if you read all the books and if you memorize, you know, the entire uh, entirety of scriptures, you'll set the world on fire. No, if you are who God called you to be, you will set the world on fire. And I take comfort in that <laughs> yeah. because I can't do what I did then, but in a small way. I can continue that 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 compel you know that that search for truth in whatever way in whatever minutes I have when I'm hiding from the kids in the closet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> find ways to to educate myself because with knowledge you know there's power. Yeah. So so how do you then communicate that to your children? So in our family, um, we've chosen to homeschool. And my oldest right now is four and a half. So we're just starting preschool. But at the same time, we have a daily routine. And there's prayers kind of sprinkled throughout the day. And I encourage my children, like if they're having a difficulty or a hard time, you know, well, ask your guardian angel to help you. Or, you know, 
do you want me to hold you and sing to you? And, and, you know, usually the songs that they choose are, you know, Salve Regina or, or Immaculate Mary or some Marian hymn because we've driven <laughs> the Marian hymns into their heads. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but it's those small things or like, instead of doing a secular thing, like for example, I don't know, Christmas, like we choose to focus more on Catholic traditions, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. awesome. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was just wondering like how, how much like of that Dominican life is kind of still, still there for you, even though you're obviously not in it, but I mean, do you still find you're drawn to the different devotions and the different um, the different saints of, of the Dominican order a lot, or do you, do you find that that's kind of changed a little bit for you? No, the Dominican saints are definitely my heroes and my number one go-tos. Um, my first three children have Dominican saints as their middle names. By the fourth, we decided we should probably break it up just to give other saints a chance. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm always turning to the Dominican saints first, whether it's can't, St. Catherine or St. Vincent Ferrer or, you know, St. Hyacinth. Like I, I spent six years with them in a sense, you know, yeah. you don't just lose that friendship. And, and I know they've got my back for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there is an obvious bias in this podcast <laughs> towards Carmelite spirituality. So <laughs> I think it'll be a pleasant surprise for the guys to hear that I'm talking with a, a former Dominican. They'll probably <laughs> appreciate that um that's pretty hipster of you i know right i know i know (laughs) so funny uh so yeah i guess i wanted to end with one question for you i guess it's it's a two two parter i guess so you had said that the the latin mass had had a real real impact on you and really helped you to essentially be inspired to to step up your spiritual life in a big way. Mm-hmm. What would you say to a serious but perhaps a naysaying Catholic who has never experienced the traditional Latin Mass to really give it a chance? You know, I'd probably, depending on the person, but I'd probably bring up that this is the Mass that made the saints. This is the Mass that was present for thousands of years, for generation upon generation. Was it perfect? Maybe not. Is it perfect now? Probably not either. But that's not the point. No matter which liturgy you attend, which mass, you know, Novus Ordo, Latin mass, it's not going to be perfect because we're trying to step into the perfect liturgy of heaven. And I think I would just, what I've done in the past is I've just challenged people. Try it. Come sit with me. It's going to be different. It's going to be uncomfortable, but that's the point. That's the point. We're not supposed to go to mass to be comforted. We're not supposed to just sit there and feel like we're getting a pat on the back. It's supposed to draw us out of ourselves into this cosmic liturgy that is constantly ongoing and then challenge us to make strides towards becoming a saint ourselves, you know? And I would just, I would just say, come with me and don't worry about whether you're sitting or standing or, you know, at the right times. That's not the point. Sit in the back, stand in the back. It doesn't matter. Just, just be come and come and see. Awesome. 
in your mind, what kind of hurdles stand in the way of the modern day Catholic that might prevent them from really giving it a go, though? For sure. I feel like I heard most of the hurdles, if not all, (laughs) when I was working at at the parish in Southern Oregon, um, when the Latin Mass was first introduced. Because I had, you know, 89-year-old, let's call her Thelma, marching into my office, demanding to know why we're going backwards. And then I had someone else coming and asking, well, why is the priest going to turn his back on us? And and I think there's a lot of um, a lot of misconceptions, but also a lot of hatred towards it. Um, and I've been I've been thinking about that lately. Like, why why do people hate something that is so beautiful and so part of our tradition? And it just hit me the other day. I was talking to my husband. I said, it's because the devil hates it. Like that is the one reason. You know, when you look at your ordinary Novus Ordo, you know, in, in any regular parish, it could be confused for Protestant worship. You know, when I was running RCIA, a lot of the RCIA candidates would come to me and say, well, this isn't really much different from what I'm already doing. Why why should I join your church? And it was this kind of like one of many options. Whereas when you go to the Latin Mass, you recognize that there's something very different. There is no rock band latte situation. You know, (laughs) there is there's silence and it's uncomfortable. You know, I think that's one hurdle is just that antagonism from older generations, younger generations. It's it's all over. It's not just one group. You know, there's a lot of antagonism because the devil hates it. And I think there's a lot of um, lack of catechesis about it too, which is really sad because if it's part of our tradition, capital T tradition, like it's not just some little custom of some community. This is like, what the church did and how the church prayed. If people aren't catechized, you know, you walk into a Latin mass and everything's just being whispered and silent and there's incense and bells. It's really foreign. Yeah. And then there's the chapel veils everywhere. And it's like, (laughs) no, I have to do that. (laughs) And families with like eight children. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's enough to scare off anybody. (laughs) Yeah. No, for sure. But yeah, like, for me, my my first encounter of a Latin mass, I would say like the beauty was almost jarring because it you like I, we walked into Latin mass wearing on a Sunday morning in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, wearing uh like, you know, carpenter jeans or whatever and like T-shirts and we were right. We were you know, we were dressed for the life teen mass and we walked mm-hmm. in and everybody was incredibly well-dressed and, you know, <laughs> like the chapel veils and all of that. And, and you realize, oh, wow, I'm not in Kansas anymore. You know, I'm not in, I'm not in the diocese of London anymore. Like, it, <laughs> but it, it, in a way, like you said, it, it challenges you. It, it, you know, if you really do take the faith seriously, it pushes you to be like, you know what? Like I do need to step it up. Not because of some like, I don't know, like prudish reasoning, but just simply out of love for God and, and love for the, the mass itself and, uh, and love for the, the Eucharist. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And that drives home, you know, the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? It's the salvation of souls. Right. You know, and if you feel, like it's drawing you towards something greater. If it's 
you know, changing you, well, that that's good. And it's hard. It hurts. <laughs> you might lose a few friends along the way. Yeah. But at the same time, that's what it's about. It's the salvation of souls. You know, it's not a feel-good church. It's not, let's just all come together and celebrate a meal around a common table. Like all these terms that have come out in recent years are really damaging. Um, whereas in the Latin mass, you don't hear those words. Nope. When you look at the prayers of the Latin mass, even like translated into English, even versus the, the current translation of the Novus Ordo, it's very different. It is. You know, in the Latin mass, it's, you know, we humbly beseech you and basically we're groveling before God, yeah. you know, yeah. whereas in the new mass is like, we're coming here and we would like you to give us what we're asking for. Amen. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but for a reason, but not really because it's, it, it <laughs> is, it is really like that. It's like, give this to us. Amen. Like, mm. yeah, it it's, yeah, it's so disrespectful in comparison, you know, it doesn't right. honor God's majesty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's very true. Amazing. So that really brings us to the end of the the interview. But uh, you did have a special little thing for our listeners, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, so I would love to share this beautiful devotion availing with anyone listening with any of the ladies, especially gentlemen. Um, I wouldn't buy one for yourselves, but <laughs> if you want to purchase one for a lovely lady that you may be dating, married to, or just happen to see, please, by all means. But I would like to offer your listeners uh, a coupon, which will be good through the end of March. And it will be a 20% off of anything in my shop. And I have chapel veils. I also have a few other pieces in there that I randomly put in as time allows. Um, so please, please visit my shop. It's Studio Laudate. Um, you can find it on Etsy. And I'm sure Chris will post a link to, to that. And the coupon will be buddy20, B-U-D-D-Y 20 at Chris's <laughs> request. <laughs> but I would, I would really challenge anyone out there um, who's listening to this and maybe considering it. You know, ladies, if you're thinking, well, maybe, but I'd be the only one, do it. And if you look at my shop and it's not something for you, is there someone else you could maybe consider pointing to the shop? You know, if you've already accepted this devotion or, or practiced this devotion, but 20% off through the end of March, buddy 20 is the promo code. Amazing. Jess, thanks so much for hanging out. This is, oh, great. thanks for having me. It's been delightful. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Huge thanks to Jessica McCormick from Studio Laudate for joining us on the podcast today. We really want to know your thoughts on the topics discussed during today's podcast, as well as your questions and topics you'd like us to explore in the future. So please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Theology of the Buddy and come hang out with us. Please follow and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play to keep up on the great conversations with new episodes coming every Wednesday. We would also love if you would rate us on iTunes if you have not done so already. It'd really help us out. Next week, the boys will be diving into the topic of preparing for Lent. Stay tratty, everybody!